So today what we want to talk about is uh, we're going to talk about the purpose of our existence. Pretty light topic to start with on a Sunday morning. Uh, what are we here for? Like, what is the purpose? So to help us understand this, we're going to travel back in time together. Way, way back. Ancient times for some of you. To the year 1993. I was in high school, finishing it up. Michael Jordan had retired for the first of three times. Top, movie, uh, top television shows were 60 Minutes, Home Improvement, <laughs> right? Seinfeld, No Soup for You, X-Files premiered, okay? If you have taste, you like X-Files. <laughs> Movies like Rudy, Tombstone, I'm your Huckleberry, Jurassic Park, I'm not going to impersonate a, a velociraptor. Schindler's List. Some silly movies like Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Tight tights. Coneheads. Bill Clinton was our president. The Cowboys were our Super Bowl champs, so it wasn't all good. Toronto Blue Jays were the world champions along with Chicago Bulls in basketball. But I bring this up because in the year 1993, a book was written by a man named John Piper, who's one of my favorite pastors. It's not a book that changed the world, but it definitely changed how people saw the world in Christian spheres. And honestly, all he did was restate what this psalm that we're looking at today said. The book's called Let the Nations Be Glad. And if you're at all interested in missions or missionary work or what it means to be a Christian, this book is phenomenal. And I'll read you a, a long quote and then I'll summarize it because really all John Piper did in 1993 was take what was written in Psalm 96 from 2000 BC and make it clear to us. So let me read this to you. Piper writes, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Wow. Worship is the ultimate goal of the church. The reason missions exist is because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age comes to an end and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, there will be no more need for missions. Worship, however, will go on forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. So what, what does this mean? What is missions? Well, missions means going and telling people about the good news, telling people about Jesus. The reason we have missionaries is because people throughout the world, and yes, right here in Gladstone, are not worshiping the God of the universe. They're worshiping substitutes, worthless substitutes. So think about that. If, if everyone in our culture, everyone in our city worshiped Jesus, we wouldn't have to go and tell them about Jesus. Instead, we would all be working towards the same thing. Now, when I say worship, I do not mean if we got everybody together to sing certain songs. That's not solely what worship is. No, I mean so much more than that. 
See, when people, when we see God rightly, we worship him overflowing in joy, overflowing in gratitude and glorifying the Lord. And that overflowing is the best testimony, the best form of witnessing, the best form of sharing Jesus with the people around us. And it's not just song. So the key goal of the Psalms is to point to Jesus. And you're going to go, wait a second, Pastor John, you said this Psalm was written 2000 BC. That's before Christ. How is this about Jesus? Well, here's the thing. All of the Psalms are looking forward to Jesus' first coming. Now that we live post his first coming, these Psalms transition nicely into looking for his return. Because the promise is, is that Jesus is going to return. And so when we read these Psalms and they're saying, oh Lord, the day of the Lord is coming, it's not talking about Jesus' first coming for us. It's talking about his return the one who is going to judge, the one who is going to be worshiped throughout the ends of the earth is coming back. So let's talk about the context of this psalm. Uh, this psalm is in reaction to the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that box that Indiana Jones found? That box that represents the presence of God in Israel? That box that was so powerful that you couldn't even lay eyes on it, you couldn't touch it? The ark for the first time is coming into the city of Jerusalem. This is recounted for us in 1 Chronicles 16. And it's a huge moment of celebration. It's not just like, oh, hey, the ark's here, sweet. No, the whole city has turned out, and this is a huge party. This is not a somber, serious occasion. It is a celebratory occasion. Trumpets, harps, lyres are cranked to full volume. Lyres being a stringed instrument not a person who doesn't tell the truth. People are singing and dancing. Yes, they're dancing, okay? I know we're a Baptist church, and maybe the, we don't have as big an issue with dancing as some other Baptist churches, but yes, there was dancing in there. This is when David dances so crazy that his wife is like, I don't know him. <laughs> this is the David we see here. So what is bringing David to this point is the fact that God's name is being lifted up. The God that he knows is on display, and he can't help himself. So this summer... As we go through the Psalms we're going to do, today we're starting 96, we're going all the way through 106 before we, we, we switch to the fall. These all have a very similar goal in mind. You know, the last few years, if you've been with us, we've been kind of in a period of lament, both like maybe worldly and nationally, but also the Psalms we've looked at. We've looked at some seriously heavy Psalms. These Psalms are not that. These Psalms are very praise-oriented. But they're meant to stir something up in us. They're meant to be something we read and then go, oh, I want to praise this God. I want to know this God. And so before we get into this first psalm of the summer, we need to make sure we all understand and are using the same words. You know, words get used incorrectly all over the place, don't they? But there's a word we need to make sure we understand and we use correctly. And it's the word worship. Worship. D.A. Carson has helped me a lot with this, and he has five things that worship is, and I want to kind of share them with you so that we all understand. Well, the first thing worship is, is it's God-centered. It's 100% God-centered. 
It's about magnifying God. And when we say magnifying, it's like a telescope trying to be able to see how great the universe is, not a microscope making something look bigger than it is. When we look out at the stars, we use this telescope to try to make these gigantic planets, gigantic suns. Uh, my, my kids and I were wa- watching a video this week, and it was talking about some, some of the stars in the universe that are so big that we have to make up new numbers to describe how big they are and how bright they are that make our sun look like a little teeny, like a little a period on a page of paper. That's what we are to do in worship. We're to make the amazingly grandiose God visible to those around us. We are to delight. It's not just knowing God. It's not just talking about him, but it's delighting in him. It's, it's joy in knowing that this God is our God. It's not somebody else's God. This is our God. The second thing worship is, is it's Christ-centered. In Revelation 5 Verse 6, it talks about the one who sits in the very center of the throne being the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who sits on the throne and the lamb. So this, this Jesus in the book of Revelation, we see him worshiped just the same as God. Jesus is God. He's the second member of the Trinity. So our worship is not just, hey, we're talking about God. No, it's also talking about Jesus. And then third, our worship is spirit-led. So we can get up here and have a great worship team, which thank you, worship team, you guys did phenomenal. We can get up here and they can be perfect musicians. They can hit all the notes perfectly. But if one person doesn't show up, I know it's not Ben, if one person doesn't show up, there's no worship. And that's the spirit. See, God's spirit comes and his job is to stir up in us emotions and thoughts, remind us of things, bring us to remembrance. So yes, many of you know the Lord and the Holy Spirit resides in you, but we want more of him. And so when the Spirit is a part of it, it becomes worship. It helps us. It says in Philippians 3, 3, we who worship by the Spirit of God. He's the one that regenerates us. He's the one that lets us see what's actually going on. So those are the first three. God-centered, Christ-centered, Spirit-enabled. The fourth one is that worship encompasses all of our lives. Now, I don't mean all of us, but I mean every aspect of our lives should be a part of our worship. Worship is not only singing songs. It is 100% singing songs. Like everything we've done so far today, all of the songs we sang was worship, but it's more than that. Worship not only is our adoration of God, but it's the actions we take in response to that adoration. And that's going to be important for us to get. And adoration is a feeling. It's an emotion that I have towards God. And the actions in response are what I do in obedience. And so worship encompasses everything. And then lastly, worship is delight in God. We we need to understand that, that worship is twofold. It's emotions. It's things that we can't help but feel. But it's also our thoughts and how we think. It's not just an experience. Many people in the church today get caught up in the experience and they have to have it be a certain way and a certain style and a certain sounds and certain smells and certain this and that. And that's all great if that stirs up emotions, but if the emotions never reach the head, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. True Christian worship involves mind 
and emotions. True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. So it's important for us to understand that worship is not solely singing. Yes, there's styles of music we call worship music. Yes, we have a worship team. Yes, we've just been led in worship. And that's how we use that word. But we need to understand worship is vastly more than that. As a matter of fact, you're not done worshiping when the worship band walks off the stage. As a matter of fact, you're supposed to be at the point where you're ready to worship. Because the sermon which points to God's word is the point of why we're here. And it's not just me up here because I have an ego and I want it to be about me. No, if we don't have God's word as the focus, what's the point? It was just a concert. It was just all singing words that made us feel fuzzy, warm, happy if we don't get to God's word. So scripture commands us to engage with singing and thinking and all of it is meant to apply to all of our lives. So worship is adoration and action. Adoration being what we do when we sing, when we praise, when we talk. Action being what we do in response to that. So let's look at this passage. There are three sections. Each one starts with a command. Verse one says sing. Verse seven says ascribe. Verse 10 says say. So if you look at that, right, the first one, verse one, is the adoration. This is sing, people, sing. He says it three times. Then verse seven and verse 10 is the action. Go and do, say these things. So because of our understanding of worship and because of the foundational aspect of it, we're gonna spend a lot of time in verses one through six, okay? So don't, as we're going through this, and you're like, wow, Pastor John's on verse four, I gotta change my lunch plans. He's gonna go two hours. Just, just be aware that we're spending a lot of time in the first six verses, all right? We're gonna camp here for a bit. The last seven verses are important as well, but they all feed off of these first six. So the first thing we see is we're called to praise God. Look at verse one. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all people. So here we see what are the correct responses. And the first one we see, verses one and two, is worship. It's adoration. It's what we've been talking about so far. So why does he start off with sing a new song? What's wrong with the old one? Is he just a snob? He doesn't like old stuff? No, what he's saying is he's saying every single day you have a new reason to sing. Every single day. What does it say? His mercies are new every single day. Just as each day we're granted a new day, so our thanks to God should be fresh and current and specific. For my youngest child, we, we've been working with him on, on gratitude, and we've, we've given him a gratitude journal. And each day he's to write out something he's thankful for. Three or four things, I don't even remember how many we have. But he's to write them out. And it's interesting, it's not the same thing every day. It's whatever he had just done the day before. And he's thankful for that. See, we're, we're to sing a new song and realize that God doesn't change, but our understanding and realization of how he's interacting with me today does, and we're to praise him for it. Each day, we're faced with a simple decision. Are we gonna give God thanks for today, or are we not? 
See, God in every single day is pouring out his mercy and his grace onto us, and what are we gonna do in response to it? So we're gonna fast forward for a second. Look at verses four and 10. Four says, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's feared above all gods. Verse 10, say to the nations, the Lord reigns. This is the fact of the universe. This is a fact whether we acknowledge it or not, that our God is great and that our God reigns. And these are the two things that we need to come into align with because if we don't see this rightly, everything else is not gonna make sense about this Christianity thing. Notice he says, sing, sing, sing. See, one of the things that I don't think we grasp, and I think the reason why we don't grasp it is because we've done it a lot. Many of you have been in church for a very long time. I know I have been in a church since before I could walk, and I've sung hundreds of thousands of hymns and worship songs and so on, and it's kind of become routine, and I've forgotten the fact that the God of the universe takes pleasure in my singing, that the God of the universe goes, I want to hear more. Not, hey, you did a really good job. You hit those notes just fine. No, I want you to talk more about me. I want you to sing more to me. Do you guys understand that all of the instruments in the world, we've got some great instruments. Like, what is Ross doing with this little bass back here, right? I mean, how is this little, like, ukulele making all that bass? It's pretty impressive, actually. Then there's even more instruments out there. I've seen crazy ones. We had our family band a couple weeks ago, and somebody, Jordan, was playing this, like, like, I don't even know what it was, but he was moving all sorts of, like, body parts. All of the instruments in the world, we can hear all of them. God goes, I have one that's my favorite. I have one instrument that's my favorite, and it's the voices of my children. That's how he sees it. And so we need to understand that that's how we need to see our worship time, our singing time. Have you ever had it where you just can't help but sing? You ever had one of those days? I know some of you just walk around singing all the time. You can't help yourself. I know it's a cliche like in musicals where they just can't bust out, help but busting out and singing, but really, I mean, if we think about it, right, if we see some young man who's very reserved and quiet and all of a sudden he's belting out the Whitney Houston love songs, we know he's Twitterpated, right? We know he's in love because he can't help himself. It's just welling up inside of him. When was the last time the Lord was the one that was welling up inside of you that made you go, oh, I can't help but sing? Sometimes I feel like this is probably because we don't see God quite rightly. I think around Easter, it's easy to do that, maybe even Christmas. I know Christmas has a lot of other stuff that gets in the way. But if we can encounter the God of the universe and see him rightly, songs just well up. Songs come to mind. Now, this is gonna maybe blow some of your guys' minds, but do you realize that the reason why God made song, the reason why God made singing, the reason why God made music was that so we could express praise to God. He didn't make it so that so-and-so can win so many Grammys or Beethoven can do this or Mozart or whatever. He didn't make it for all of that. That's all subsequent to the purpose he made it. He made it because he went, you know, I'm so great that you're gonna run out of words. And so you need to have songs to tell how great I am. That's why God made song. 
All this other stuff that we, we look at, all these other things about song and melodies and all of that, yeah, that's great, but the whole purpose of it was made to glorify God. Well, how do I get that? Well, the Bible says we're, everything is made to glorify God, and song especially. Our spoken language runs out of being able to express it, so we have to put it into singing. Do we do this? Do we, do we sing for joy? You know, sometimes I think we have a messed up view of what should be bringing us real joy. For some of us, it's, hey, our air conditioner is actually working. Or my streaming service only has good shows and no garbage on it. Maybe it's having my feet up and a cold drink, people being healthy, all my bills being paid. Now, these are all great things. These are all joyful things. But they're like sub-joys of the ultimate joy. They're small in comparison to the, to the God who made the heavens, the God who made the nebulae and the stars and the universe. Not only that, but this God, we have his attention. We have his ear. This God who made all of, put that, yeah, it's still up there. God who made all of that goes, you're my prized possession. You're my treasure. And when you make a joyful noise, not a joyful melody, joyful noise, doesn't have to be good, he gets glory, he gets pleasure. What an incredible thing that we see here. Now you're like, okay, so help me understand this whole joy thing. Well, let's look at what the disciples did. When did the Christians in the past sing for joy? Acts 5, let's look at this. The apostles are before the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council. Verse 40, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer the name, dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So they were just beaten and threatened with their lives, and they went outside rejoicing, leaping, singing, praising, so much so that they didn't take a day off to tell people about this Jesus. They're like, okay, it doesn't say singing, Pastor John. All right, okay, all right, let's go. Acts 16, look at verse 22. The crowd, so this is Paul and Barnabas. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, the inner prison is in the dead center at the very bottom, the very bottom, okay? This is the septic tank of the prison because all, we all know poop flows down, you know, downhill, right? They are in the very worst. They're in the worst place. At this point, you would expect them to be going, I need to really rethink this life choice that I've made. You know, this career of being an apostle, it's just not working, Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And that's singing loudly. That's what that word means. Singing boisterous. They're, they're letting it go. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So these men, in the worst day of their life to this point, it gets worse for Paul, 
But at this point, this is the worst day. They're praising God. They're sitting in a septic tank, and they're praising God for that opportunity. What a picture. This is so foreign to us. Spurgeon writes, when your heart is full of Christ, all you can do is sing. Now, to give you a picture of where this is going, look at Revelation 5. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests of our God, and they will reign on earth. The singing continues on. The worship continues on all the way to heaven. Remember, worship is adoration and action. The adoration goes vertical. It goes to God. And I'm saying, God, that is what you are like. And the action is the horizontal when the people around me see me singing. But it's also the action as well is when I'm walking through my day and I may not be singing out loud, but I am worshiping God in what I do. He gets the glory and the people around me go, what is wrong with that person? There's something not right. He doesn't fit because he belongs to the true king. Now, does our singing really matter? I mean, it matters in that it's one of the ways we worship, but really, you know, what is it showing? Is God really even listening? And the answer is, he absolutely is. Think about, like, oh, we saw, I showed you the picture a second ago. Think about all the pieces of artwork in the world. Think about all the things he could be looking at. We think, if I can't sing well, I shouldn't be singing, as if, as if God were Simon Cowell, you know, the mean judge from American Idol, that he's up there judging and saying, well, you didn't hit those notes, I'm not taking it. That's not the way God views this. Instead, he goes, you're singing about the most precious being in the universe, me, and I am lapping it up. I can take it. It's supposed to be towards me. This is what I made you for. I delight in you. This adoration allows others to see God as he truly is. Let's look again at verse two. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory, his marvelous works among all the peoples. This is the second response, and this is witnessing. Witnessing. Tell means to proclaim or announce, and the word declare means to tell. This word here means evangelize. It means to publish. It means to spread it out, make it known. Think about it this way. When we, we praise God, we, we do it through not only what we do, but also how we do it and the words we say. I mean, I can tell my wife, I can say, you're awesome. I think you're amazing, right? I can say that to her, right? And that's praise, but another way to do it is, hey, you guys, my wife over here, she's pretty awesome. That's another way. And this is what we are to do when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to God. Yes, we're to tell him how great he is and to see that. But we're also to tell others. Let me put it to you this way. C.S. Lewis says it like this. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought in terms of compliment or approval or giving honor, I had never noticed that the enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Husbands praising their wives, readers praising their poets, favorite poets, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. 
I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely expressed, but completes the enjoyment. It's like this. If I get joy from something, one way I can get more joy from that thing is introducing it to someone else and them getting joy from it. And that's what we are called to do. That's the witness portion. We are to go to the nations and proclaim this Jesus. And for many of them, they're gonna go, that's way better than the God I've been serving. I mean, our, our culture is working so hard to not offend based on a moving goalpost of our culture's views. Well, this week you can't say this word because that's triggering. This week it's this, and so on and so forth, and it's exhausting. And Christ says, come to me and find rest. See, the thing about this psalm is, remember, it's written to the Israelites as the ark is coming to Jerusalem. But the focus of the psalm is on all the other nations. And the reason for this is because God is too small to just be an Israelite God. God is too small to be a new life Gladstone God. He is the God of everyone. And so we are to focus on showing him to the world. In other words, we see the psalmist saying, all the earth, all the peoples, all the gods, all the earth, all the gods are worthless. He really means all, every single one. All these false gods that people are, are worshiping, we are to show them the true God. And we show them that by worshiping him, by making him the God that he is. So why do we praise? Well, verse four and five tell us it's because of his supremacy. Look at verse four. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised He's to be feared above all gods. Creation speaks to this in all that we do. At this point, I feel like the psalmist is, is running out of words, and he's like, God's the greatest of the great, greater, greater tens. He's just running out of words. You can see that he just wants to keep saying more and more. Nothing speaks more clearly to the skeptic and the unbeliever than true worship by Christians. People who not only honor God with their lips, but live lives that reflect the truth. Worship stirs up more worship in us. The more we come and the more we actually worship here on Sundays in song, it stirs up more worship as we walk out these doors. And it like makes us light up. It, it revives us. It gives us life to go through our week. And we know we can't do it alone. And so we do things like life groups where we come and hopefully we're worshiping there. We do things like women's Bible study and men's Bible study and youth group. We do gatherings like that to help us continue to be stirred up to worship. Only a heart filled with overflowing joy will want to share the source of that joy. If I had a cure for cancer, would I want to keep it a secret? Worship is to propel us out into the world because God is supreme. Verse five, for all the gods of the world are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. This is not your usual term for idol. It's a kind of an interesting term. It's to contrast worthless things with the God who made everything. If you were going to read this in the, in the Hebrew, you would say God, Elohim, God's Elohims are worthless idols. It's a play on words. If we were to translate it, it means worthlessness is. That, and that doesn't work in English. And so probably the best here is worthless gods. 
for all the gods of the people are worthless gods. And you're going, of course they are. They're little idols made out of wood. That's not what he means here. What he means is they have no power. They are powerless gods. They have nothing like the God of the universe. They make empty claims in contrast to the God who makes the heavens. The gods of this world are sex. If only you have sex with the right person in the right way at the right time, you will be fulfilled. False. Power. If only you had more control of your life, of your job, of this government, of whatever, you will be fulfilled. False. Pride. If only people accepted me, if only people liked me as much as I liked myself, I would be happy. False. Money. If I only had more, if I only had the newest this, false. Control. If only I could get the people in my life to do the things that I wanted, false. All of these idols, all of these worthless gods cannot provide. They cannot do what the God of the universe does. But the thing is, we as Christians, and this is where it, it kind of hits home, is that we flirt with these gods. We flirt with these gods throughout our week, don't we? The God of the universe we worship on Sundays, but the rest of the week we go, I'm gonna hedge my bets and I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure I have enough money and I'm gonna make sure that I'm pursuing this or pursuing that. If we actually believed what verse 10 says, which is the Lord reigns. Not he may reign, not he will reign, not the Bible says he's gonna reign, but the declaration he reigns. How would that change how we live? If the king is on the throne and he is in control, that should change all of what we do. The second reason why we are to praise him is from verse six, it's his superiority. This is a, this is a really interesting verse. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Now this is interesting because splendor and majesty are adjectives. They're adjectives. They describe something. But these adjectives are being talked about like nouns. They're being talked about like someone standing in front of God. It's a weird way to put it. Right? Splendor and majesty are standing in front of God. Strength and beauty are hanging out in his sanctuary. Okay, what are you doing here, psalmist? Well, let me tell you what, you're, what he's doing here. He's saying, God is the source of all of these. God is the source of what splendor actually is. We might say, hey, I saw the, the, the recent the wedding in England, and it was very, there was so much splendor on display. And what the psalmist is saying is, yeah, that was a small fraction of God's splendor. He is the definition of splendor. He's the definition of majesty. He's the definition of strength. You know, all the professional bodybuilders in the world, they don't got nothing on God. Not to mention beauty. He's beautiful. God literally is the source of all of these. I love that that's how he put this. These idols are no things. God is the source of all things. What a picture we see of this God. Okay, so I told you the first six verses we were gonna be slow on. Now we're getting into the last part and it'll be faster. Verse seven, this is all things are called to praise God. Verse seven, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering 
Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. This word ascribe means to recognize. It's it's saying, look and see this is what he's like. Recognize game, okay? Saying, see the game. See the fact that this is who God is. Ascribe to him glory. Ascribe to him the glory that is due his name. You know, one of the things this this ascribe can also mean is, is give or sacrifice, sacrifice to God. And one of the ways that we can sacrifice is with our mouths. Hebrews 13 says, through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So what the author of Hebrews is saying there is saying when we acknowledge God and we say how great he is with our mouths, it's a sacrifice of praise that God is pleased with it. And you all right now know there's places that if you acknowledge God with your mouth, it's gonna be a sacrifice because people are gonna get mad at you. People are going to be upset with you. People are going to call you names. But recognize that this is what we are called to do. We are called to witness. And then look at verse 9. He says, worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. This word worship here means to fall on your face as if you were dead. It means to lay down in front of him and go, I am nothing. You are everything. I bow before you. See, if we see God that way, that we are nothing and he is everything, saying words about how great he is is a small sacrifice by comparison. This is a heart posture, a position that we are to have. Verse 10, the correct response of of witness. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved He will judge the peoples with equity. The Lord reigns. This is what we've been talking about with in the book of Matthew, that Jesus is the king. He is the the reigning king. And here, again, this is the focus of our psalms for the entire summer. Jesus is king. The Lord reigns. Our daily lives should be affected by this truth that he is in control. Things aren't going the way you want. He is in control. Things are going great. It's because he is in control. When the day's kind of meh, he is in control. He is in control of all of it. It says the ju- he will judge the peoples with equity. This word equity is being abused in our culture right now. This word here means fairly. He will judge fairly. In the last four verses, we see judging over and over and over again. And it's really easy for us to be like, yes, he's going to get the bad guys. And that is a portion of it. It is true. But here, what this means is this means he's going to come and make everything right. He's going to come and make it perfect. And in some instances, that means that evil people are going to be cast into hell. It also means righteous people who've suffered are going to have it made up to them. And all the in-between. That's what he means. He's going to come and make it right. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 talks about creation, longing for the day for the world to be made right. This idea of the Lord reigning. He's going to set things right. 
No matter how bad it gets in our day, no matter how bad it gets in our lives, he's going to set things right. And lastly, creation joins in this. Look at verse 11. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. This is what creation was made to do. All of creation is going to join in this. This word roar means to resound. Exult means to be jubilant. If you've ever been out in the forest and the wind goes through the trees, it makes its own sound. It's a song. And it is limited. Our created world is limited. It's fallen. Trees fall down. Trees get diseases. Grass withers. Flowers, blooms go away. But nature is preaching. Nature is worshiping. Nature is singing. We get to see a little bit of that now. But ultimately, we get to join with nature for all of eternity. It says at the very end of, the beginning of verse 13, he comes to judge the earth. Revelation 1.7 tells us what this looks like. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Romans 14 says, 14.10 says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat. This is a, a future event that is coming, and creation is longing for it. Creation can't wait. Creation is pointing forward to that. And why does creation look forward to it? The second part of 13, he will judge the world in righteousness, fairly, and the peoples in faithfulness with justice. The Lord is coming, and the Lord is going to judge fairly. So do we see this? Do we, does this cause us to overflow? It will if we see the Lord rightly. If we see the Lord as he truly is, his judgment is not something to be feared because we're seeing him through the lens of Jesus Christ. And when you bring that into the equation, this judgment is a time of glory because it makes Jesus look great. He took our sins. He took our punishment. David dancing before the Lord doesn't seem so crazy when we see the Lord rightly. And he was just looking forward to Jesus. We're looking back on what Jesus did. Let's get to dancing. So these psalms all have one purpose, and it's to see God rightly. So I want to go back to verse 1 as we wrap up, because we, we missed something. And I, and I know we missed it because I know that I've, well, maybe you all are better than me, probably. But I know that when I read this, I missed it the first time. Look at verse 1 and the first part of 2. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. This is the goal. This is what we're to do. But I think we miss something here because I think most of us, when we read this, we, we translate it in our brains to say, sing about the Lord a new song. Sing about the Lord, all the earth. Sing about the Lord and bless his name. But that's not what it says. Now, that's not wrong. We are to sing about the Lord. Psalms do that, right? They describe what God's like. But that's not what this psalm is saying we are to do. We are to sing to him. We are to talk to him. We're to tell him how great he is. We're not here reciting about 
this God that we don't know. No, we're talking to our Father. We're talking to our Heavenly Father. When we sing to the Lord, something happens. A room full of people singing to the God of the universe is not usual. It's not normal, but it's alive and it's vibrant. We need to not live off of previous generations. My parents were Christians, so I'm a Christian. We need to not live off some past event. I prayed a prayer, therefore I'm a Christian. We need to live right here and right now in direct relationship with the God of the universe. Then and only then will we be truly alive. Then and only then will we have the relationship that we are to have. We need to sing to him. He is real. He is personal. He is known. He's present. And he's so precious. The more intense and more personal and more engaging our worship will be, the more it will draw people in to this God that we serve. And we can see this today. We can see him around us. His presence should affect us. His presence should be the thing we see. Yes, it's limited, but here's the thing. Just like I've said before, we can start eternity now. We can start praising God now, and yes, it's limited. We don't get to see him as he fully is, but the promise is, is as we praise him, as we sing to him, as we worship him throughout our week, we get more of him. That's his promise. That's the reward. That's the goal. We can join in worship with creation. What an incredible thing we get to look forward to and what a day it will be when we can sing and see him clearly. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, your glory is amazing. Lord, your son and his death on the cross in our place, beyond expression, Lord, we can't even compare we can't even come up with words. So Lord, I pray that your spirit now as we pray and then as we sing some more, that your spirit would take our words and make them as majestic as you are, as glorious as you are. And I pray that it would not just be something we do here on Sundays, but it would be something that goes with us throughout the week. And that Lord, as we go into this dark, dark world, that, Lord, we, our light would shine because we know you as our Father. Help us to be that light to those around us. Give us a new song tomorrow morning when we wake up. Help us to be grateful and thankful to you. In your name, amen.